My dear old dad claims he had just one basic rule when we were growing up. As I recall, it was a little more complicated than that. And my siblings and I have chatted about this over the years, as children do. No griping, of course, just chatting about the rules in our home. And I'm sure we could all list plenty of chores around the farm, around the house, uh, behavior expectations at home, at school, in the neighborhood, with friends. And yet he says, with a twinkle in his eye, that there was just one rule. Are you ready for it? Okay, the only thing he said he required was prompt, cheerful obedience. <laughs> That's it, right? Ah, uh, yes, okay, so we, there's, there's that, right? There's some precedent for that. You know, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's true, parents stand in the place of, of God in the, in the lives of their children to direct and guide. Not ever perfectly, however, but we are as agents and representatives in, in that way. But how many of us really can get that right to where we can say, just listen to me and all will go well with you. Um, but we see it in the ministry of Jesus, right? He's elevated above my dad here. Uh, in the ministry of Jesus that he required this kind of responsiveness from his disciples. Uh, don't ask, just, just do. Um, and when the Spirit came among the believers, they were expected to respond with cheerful, prompt obedience as well. And it was certain if they were following the Spirit, that they were in the will of the Father, and they could experience that joy. Today we're going to see how the church is supposed to respond to the Spirit. As we look at the passage today, Acts 12, 25 is where we'll begin. Barnabas and Saul are returning from Jerusalem after their mission that they had taken, uh, which was to bring financial aid to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem uh, in light of a famine and and they were showing their care and concern for them from, from Antioch and, and from other places. They brought with them back from Jerusalem John, whose name was Mark. And we know that John Mark was Barnabas's cousin, and he was very close to the apostles, um, as the church often met in his mom's house, Mary's house, the fabled uh, upper room. All right. uh, Acts 13, verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch, that's up in Syria, uh, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, <laughs> last uh, but not least. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. <laughs> wow. Okay, so to start with, let's do a little bit of work just to figure out who these people are. The, the prophets and teachers are listed. Barnabas, we know, as born on Cyprus, a generous man selling land, supporting the church. Um, his real name was Joseph, but he was such an encourager that they gave him the nickname Bar Navas, which is the son of encouragement. He became the bridge for Saul he, to, to cross into the community that was afraid of him because he was a persecutor of the church. And Barnabas has been vouching for him among these fearful Christians. We've got Simeon called Niger. Uh, which is the Greek form of the Latin for black. 
So Simeon obviously had a dark complexion, likely from Africa, maybe Cyrene, North Africa, uh, like the next gentleman, the other prophet, Lucius of Cyrene. Um, Cyrene had a huge Jewish population, and that would put Lucius in the company of the Jewish background Christians, and maybe the same ones that are mentioned in Acts 11.20 as the evangelists who got the church started in Antioch, maybe with Simeon as well. Manain was one connected guy. He was close friends with Herod Antipas. Okay, uh, This was the Herod who was ruling when Jesus was teaching. The Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. Manain has seen a lot. He was likely uh, a buddy that just kind of grew up alongside as like his playmate or his friend growing up as a young ruler. Um, so imagine the wealth of information that Dr. Luke would get um, as he's curious about all the historical details of the Herod family, which he writes about in his gospel account as well. So we have this really inside connection to these stories that we've been telling about the Herod family, which was so messed up. Manain must just be living, living the dream now, following Jesus, realizing true light and life and power and authority by the Spirit. Trailing the list, but not for long, was Saul. He had proven himself uh, faithful to Jesus and trustworthy on the last mission, and he's taught the Antioch church for quite a while now and become respected as one who understands and teaches the Word of God. So Luke mentions that the church in Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting. Dean Penter notes that the purpose of mentioning these two activities for Luke is that the Holy Spirit speaks to the community about mission in the context of corporate worship. The, the Spirit speaks to the community about mission in the context of corporate worship. This is interesting. Is that why you're listening in? You're watching today? You're ready for the Spirit to point you out to the rest of us and send you on mission? Yeah? It's kind of dangerous to gather with the church, isn't it? If that's what the, the purpose is, the Spirit wants to, to speak to the community about mission in the context of corporate worship. Wow. It's true that there are um, two aspects of the local church. There's the gathered church and then the scattered church. The gathered church and then the sent church. Uh, we gather together and we send one another into the mission that God has for us. We need to be ready for that. It's been said that the church is the only institution that exists for its non-members. Yeah, we're, we're here for them. And the Spirit absolutely loves when we gather together and respond to Him. Because the world is vast and many still don't know Jesus. And the kingdom still must come in and through our lives. So even if that's not why you gathered today, could we develop this sense together? In worship, in prayer, and fasting, can we get our hearts set on what God is saying? What is it? God, that you want me to do. Even during this message, would you just say to the Spirit, okay, if there's something you want me to do, would you point that out to me now? 
this is a growing area for our church. We need more prayer warriors. We need more hungry family members. We need more worshipers of Jesus. And I'll say that, that we're good at showing up hungry for the word. Yeah, our services are centered around the exposition of the word and worship songs that, that help us remember the truth. But it's been a while, don't you think, since someone around here declared a fast? That's a time when you intentionally get hungry to remind yourself of what God truly desires. We begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness, which is right relationships, restored relationships with God and with others. And if we're all about his reputation and his kingdom and his desires, could we get into that mode together? Do we really want anything as a church that the Father does not want for us? We need to be thinking about that. Willie James Jennings distills the concept in this way. Wherever men and women give themselves to the disciplines that attune the body to its hunger for the Spirit, they will find themselves receptive to the voice of God, and they will hear the Spirit speaking and offering guidance. Get hungry for the Spirit. Spirit, I want to hear from you. Speak to me. That we then find ourselves receptive to the voice of God as a community. And we'll hear the Spirit speaking and offering guidance. Okay, we're still here at verse 2, right? The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work for which I have called them. What do you say to that? Absolutely. The Spirit says, I need you and you and you. Yep, these two. First, you know, finish your gathering, and then I want you to send them off. Now, here's a pesky pastor question. Uh, does the Spirit call people today? Does he send people today? What would you do if it was clear to the church as a direction from the Holy Spirit that you, yeah, you, were to be sent to do a task, a specific task, a mission. Why, why, why does this seem weird? Is it, again, pesky pastor question, is it because you are so settled in your life that you've forgotten the life that we have together as a family led by the Spirit? Okay, go ahead and just let that one stick in, in your soul for a moment. Whose life? is this. Maybe you could at least be honest with the Holy Spirit and just tell him, I'm off duty. I'm unavailable. I'm busy. Look somewhere else. That's another person you're talking about. Or I, as your pastor, would suggest you repent. Offer a heartfelt response that says, Spirit, you know my heart. You know my abilities. If you see something I don't see, then send me. Equip me for the task to which you've called me. Perhaps you know this truism. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. For Barnabas and Saul, they had some on-the-job training already, to be sure. But this was a new venture, and it would take a close relationship with the Spirit to have any idea what to do. Saul would, in this episode, become the front-runner, no longer trailing behind Barnabas. You'll see the power of the Spirit to use Saul in remarkable ways. 
He could do that with you too. In fact, Luke is about to match Saul up with Peter in what he says and does. We've learned a lot about Peter. He's done this, he's done this, healings, all this kind of stuff. You're going to see all that mapped out in Saul as well. The Spirit has all but complete access to Saul from here on out. Just sold out, ready to follow the Spirit. Uh, verse 4 through 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Okay, so down to Seleucia. That's the port 20 miles outside of, of Antioch down the Orontes River. And from there they sailed to Cyprus and they um, arrive at Salamis and proclaim the word of God in the synagogues, and they had John to assist them. You might recall that Paul would later say that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we're going to see over and over as he enters town after town, city after city, that he goes to seek out his Jewish brothers and sisters. He wants more than anything for them to hear the truth about Messiah Jesus. He will offer up his life many times in order to see them find the truth. Please, God, let them see. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of salvation. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. What a great posture. What kind words about this proconsul. He's serving the Roman Senate and, and, and caring for this island. And we say, well, wait, aren't the Romans the bad guys in this story? Well, what business does he have saying, oh, he's an intelligent guy. He wants to hear the word of the Lord. Tom Wright reminds us that Luke is very much aware of the larger Roman world for which he is writing. And though Roman officials in this book sometimes do the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, he wants everyone to be aware that he will give credit where credit is due. He's not prejudiced or eager to regard all officials, especially all the Romans, as automatically a danger to God's world and God's people. He's writing and wants to just give credit where credit is due, and this proconsul is an intelligent man, it says, and he's seeking out the word of the Lord. But why would an intelligent proconsul have a false prophet as an advisor, I'm asking myself? Well, the claim of false prophet comes because he's contradicting the gospel. The gospel that declares Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord, is being contradicted. He's going counter to what Paul, the true prophet, is saying. And also, it was standard for a Roman official to have a court astrologer as an advisor. All the great courts had one. He would be checking the stars, the, reading the omens, and as we learned last week, watching the birds in flight to see if the signs were auspicious. Both Sergius Paulus and his court magician Bar-Jesus Bar were in for a display of true power and true wisdom. The kingdom of Messiah Jesus has been inaugurated. Jesus is the high priest who inaugurates the kingdom and the king who sits on the throne. Verse 8, uh, but Elymas the magician 
that's apparently what his that Elemis means, magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So opposition, right? And just like with Jesus, the mission, the gospel declaration, will be opposed by the enemy of our souls. The devil seeks to thwart the mission, darken the mind, twist the words, you know, silence the message. Absolutely. If this is not a reason to fast and pray, I don't know what is. I have people in my life, you probably have them in yours, that have been, that given themselves over to lies of the enemy. And my prayer is that God would send his angels to do battle, to fight back the darkness the mist, the blindness, the deafness that keeps people from seeing Jesus as the true light of the world. Please, God, send your angels. So after this encounter, Saul, who was also called Paul, you know, we're starting to get the name change here. Um, Saulus in Greek is not a, a, a great um uh, a great adjective. It means someone prancing about. And a man who's giving the message of the gospel doesn't want his Hebrew name turned into an adjective, Saulus. That means um, mincing about with his steps. <laughs> so he's going to stick with his Greek name, which he either took on now or that he's just always had. You can just call me Paul, right? Paulus. Um, so that's a little background there. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elemis and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Wow. Stand up straight. This is clearly a moral lesson, if you're trying to take a lesson from this, to not be that guy. Paul covers the whole of this man's character and his action. He's full of deceit and villainy, fraud in his magic and false prophecy. He's not the son of Jesus, bar Jesus, son of salvation, but he's the son of the devil, who's the source of this false inspiration. He's the enemy of all that is right and good. In his attempt to keep the proconsul away from the faith, he's the opposite of the forerunner, John the Baptist. We'll see him highlighted in the next passage, who made straight paths for the Messiah. Now you're trying to take the straight paths and turn them crooked. Now, none of you have exhibited these tendencies or the elders would need to call you out. But isn't it interesting how timid we are to even call out this kind of behavior when we see it? You know, we say, you know, I think rightly that Jesus, you know, he focused his... Um, his attention on chewing out the teachers of Israel, right? The religious establishment, not the sinners. But here's a case of, of both. Again, you've got a false teacher, Jewish false teacher, who's tied directly to the devil. Though Jesus would like to point out to you that he called the teachers of the law children of the devil as well. So there's that. But Paul is having this showdown, prophet to prophet, showdown, like his hero Elijah. Remember on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, whose God will win? <laughs> Verses 11 and 12. Paul, after staring intently and diagnosing the spiritual problem, says this, And now behold, 
the Lord, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Wow. You know, Paul's experience of blindness after he met Jesus face to face was temporary. Maybe it will be the same for Elymas if he repents after attempting to block the message of Christ's duly appointed messenger, his herald, Paul. It says this, and then close, it says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. <laughs> okay, so we have this story of worshiping, praying, fasting as a group. Sending, going, preaching, confronting, and believing. What do we take from this? Uh, I'm just going to give you three things. And whatever else the Spirit's telling you, that's, that's super important. If the Spirit sends you, go. Right? You and I get nudges all the time to stay here. Mm, go there. Oh, say something. Mm, offer help here. Will you make the commitment right now to the Holy Spirit? that you will start listening, maybe start listening again, and responding. Would you just make that commitment right now to the Holy Spirit? I will start listening and responding. I hear from a lot of people that they just don't hear from God anymore. I don't experience these nudges, they might say. Well, can I remind you that your relationship with the Holy Spirit is a relationship. Think about some intimate relationships that you have. If you stop listening to that person and responding to them, what needs to happen before that communication gets restored? Think about that. Yeah, yeah. you need to approach them, confess the hardness of your heart, ask for forgiveness, pledge to start again with a new tenderness and love for that person. So I say, repent, turn around, head toward Jesus. His Spirit will empower you. So if the Spirit sends you, go. Number two, if the Spirit sends you, go fast. Fast. Uh, develop a discerning heart through spiritual disciplines in community. Remember what Jennings said, wherever women and men give themselves to the disciplines that attune the body to its hunger for the Spirit, they will find themselves receptive to the voice of God, and they will hear the Spirit speaking and offering guidance. Okay, so there's some repentance there, but then through fasting, through spiritual disciplines that attune us to the hunger for the Spirit, we can begin to hear God's guidance. I would love for us to think about this in the upcoming season of Lent. That's March 2 through April 14. That's the run-up to Easter, right? The only thing I've regularly given up for Lent was fasting itself. <laughs> Sorry, that was a joke. Uh, but I'm wondering if we could have a season of fasting, even if it's not a ritual calendar that we normally follow. Let's begin to pray about that. And I would be glad to discuss with you, along with our elders, how we could commit to this unique spiritual discipline in our run-up, our approach to Easter Sunday. I'm not suggesting they swear off all food for 40 days, but maybe there would be regular days or certain things that we fast from during the entire season of Lent. Let's think about that. You know, we typically avoid hunger like the plague. Um, and, but 
I will say it does open up some spiritual realities about what we should truly be hungry for, right? What can we? What should we be truly hunger for? And if we don't start with our own hunger for the Spirit and hunger to receive the Word of the Lord, how can we expect others to get hungry, the ones that we care about so much? So if the Spirit sends you, go and fast... And, and the last thing, it may be simple, but I know it's not easy. It may be simple, but it's not easy. Tell them what Jesus told you to tell them. Paul would say, I know what Elymas needs to hear right now. Paul would say, I know what Sergius Paulus needs to hear right now. Tell them what Jesus told you to tell them. Yeah, it's right. You are a messenger duly appointed by Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. You have something to say to everyone that you meet. It's, it's simple. Is that a bold claim? Am I telling you that you have the gift of prophecy and can channel God's words to others being carried along by the Holy Spirit? Well, no, I, I can't confirm that. But we do have scripture given by the prophetic gift. As Peter said, he was an eyewitness of Jesus. He said in his letter to his followers of Jesus that he was taking care of. He says in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, he says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you may not have a prophetic word in the sense of um, you are carried along by the Spirit. You understand exactly what to say. But we pass on what we know from the Spirit through His Word. It's simple in that sense. But I said it's not easy, right? It's not like, I've got a peaceful, easy message, and it won't be opposed. It's not it, right? Uh, wrong. You can expect opposition. It's not easy. You are, after all, treading on ground held by the dark powers. Does that sound intense? Yes. You're treading on the heads of the serpents. You are heading into territory to win back souls from the dark Lord. I agree with Tom Wright. He says, we would li have liked it better if Paul had gone about telling people the simple message of Jesus and finding that many people were happy to accept it and live by it. Yeah, but that's not what we were called to do. And that's not what is laid out for Paul and Barnabas on their journeys as well. Do you ever find it easy? Easy to get the words out? Easy for people to just accept the word of the Lord with no oppositions? Well, neither do I. But with prompt, cheerful obedience to the Spirit, um, we have a definition of success, right? Prompt, cheerful obedience is the definition of success for life in the Spirit.